Welcome to Superbloom, the mentorship podcast empowering young women from college to postgrad to career. This is Madeline, and today I'm here with Christine Chun, a senior product designer at Instacart. Christine graduated from Wellesley College in 2015, where she majored in chemistry. After graduation, Christine started her career in beauty marketing at Tatcha, where she worked as a communication specialist. However, Christine realized beauty marketing wasn't the right fit for her after a year into her first job. After exploring different career paths, she decided to pursue a career in product design. In the past five years, Christine has worked in product design across the tech industry at Zap Labs, Instacart, and Facebook. When she's not designing, Christine runs a YouTube channel, Chan Buns, where she shares her experience as a designer living in San Francisco with her community of more than 80,000 subscribers. In this episode, Christine shares how she made a successful career pivot from beauty marketing to product design, and what it's like working in the tech industry from smaller startups to big tech companies. We also talk about Christine's postgrad advice and tips everything from imposter syndrome to the power of authenticity and vulnerability, especially when it comes to networking and mentorship. Thank you so much for joining us, Christine. We are so excited to have you on the podcast today. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So starting off, you're currently a senior product designer at Instacart, but you started out your career as a communication specialist at Tatcha. How did you find yourself working at Tatcha after graduating from Wellesley with a chemistry degree? Yeah, so I actually have never um, talked very detailed about my journey, long-winded journey into product design. But um, this goes back to my college days where I studied chemistry in college um, at Wellesley and I was pivoting careers during my senior year of college. Um, That was when I started my YouTube channel and I started doing things that I wouldn't normally do. And um, it all started from my spring break during my junior year of college where I visited San Francisco and for some reason, I just loved the city and I knew that I wanted to be back here after graduation. And so um, that kind of triggered something in me to explore a lot of different things that I wasn't comfortable with. So my senior year, I decided not to go into the traditional chem track, which is mostly, you know, applying to grad school or becoming a research assistant, working at labs or going to med school. And so um, I created a lot of these internships for myself in marketing specifically um, as I was doing beauty tutorials on YouTube and teaching myself video editing. I marketed myself as sort of this social media guru, a social media specialist to some of these startups. Um, And so it was a, it was more of a snowball effect than anything where one thing led to another. At one point I was working in New York at a fashion startup as a sales intern. I didn't even know what salespeople did at that time. And so after my experience in New York, I knew that's not where I wanted to be. It was just not this type of city that I um, wanted to live in. It was fun to visit. And so I wanted to find a job in San Francisco and I was talking to a lot of alums and different types of people to broaden my horizon um, on what type of jobs are out there. And so there was this one alum who was also a chem major and who was a cosmetologist. She was working at L'Oreal. I thought she was super cool because she's the only person I know uh, in my network, um, who is doing something beauty related, but um, had also done chemistry, had also studied chemistry. And so she's the one who told me about Tatcha, um, which was also founded by a Wellesley alum. And she told me you should, you should hit them up and, and chat and like, see where that goes. And so I emailed Tatcha and I told them that I was a senior at Wellesley. I'm really into beauty marketing. I do 
my own YouTube videos, um, and I know a lot about the influencer world. And so I pitched myself in a way, and we started having phone conversations. Um, and I knew that they weren't hiring uh, new grads. There weren't any positions for me. And so um, I thought that was kind of, you know, a bummer where we, we had really good conversations. And that's when you know the interview's good, when you have a good conversation. Um, and I had booked a ticket to San Francisco for my spring break uh, for my senior year. And I told them that I was visiting. And when I, uh, about a week before I actually visited San Francisco, I, um, I told them that I wanted to come into the office if, if they wanted to meet me. So I, I opened up the opportunity and they told me that they would love to see me. So I, it wasn't an interview. I, but I made it an interview. <laughs> And so I went in prepared with the whole deck, a spiel of how I would tackle influencer marketing if they were to hire me, um, and how they should enter some of the, and how they should, um, market themselves to some of these Asian beauty bloggers because K beauty was still not a big thing at that time. This was like five, six years ago. And so, um, that conversation went well, but then there, uh, the CEO wasn't there at that time. So they couldn't really make any decision whether to offer me an internship or whether to offer me a full-time job. So I just went back home and I was supposed to leave midweek to go back to Boston. Um, but I extended my flight. I just knew that this is like where I wanted to be and I wanted to get an offer. I don't know what I was thinking, but I wanted to get an offer during my spring break. And so I extended my flight and I told Tatcha, Look, I'm staying here for longer. I'm more than happy to come by again. Um, and they were like, great. Vicky, the CEO is going to be here on Wednesday. Um, feel free to come in. Like we, she wants to meet you. So I meet her and she tells me straight up, we really like you. You're, you're very passionate, obviously, and you're super proactive about. Um, this industry and, and you're very knowledgeable in the influencer marketing world. So we want to offer you a position. We don't have a position for you, but we want to extend that offer. So I was really ecstatic because Tacho was a brand I really liked. Um, and San Francisco was a city I loved and I wanted to be in. Um, and I didn't really care at that time what my job entailed. I just wanted that experience in beauty, um, marketing. So communication specialist is, not a common word. Basically, what I did was I, I wore multiple hats um, because it was a very small startup at that time. And I was doing a lot of email marketing, influencer management, and reaching out to influencers to give them PR kits. I also designed some you know, PR kits as, as part of my job um, and worked with a social person there to come up with social content. So I learned a variety of things and it was a really good experience. Um, but what I got out of my first job really was I learned that I liked the beauty industry as a consumer and not necessarily as someone who wants to work in the beauty industry. And after Tatcha, you started to pursue a career in product design. Could you tell us why you made that decision and what that process was like? Yeah, so I knew about product design through a friend. Um, she was a friend that I was visiting during my spring break. She was the first cohort of General Assembly, which is a UX design bootcamp in San Francisco. So I, I knew what product design was, but I didn't really know what she did. Um, but I could tell she really enjoyed it. And so around my first year mark at Tatcha, um, I was really burnt out and I felt I had a moment of crisis. I felt very lost in my career. I knew that my skill set wasn't that marketable because I was looking for new jobs at that time. And I wasn't really getting callbacks. I didn't really know what I was good at. And that's when I started, again, talking to a lot of people, hopping on a lot of 30-minute phone calls. They're friends of friends. And um I started making a list of all these jobs that I wanted to learn more about and potentially try out. And UX design was one of them since it's, you know, I live in tech. 
or I, I live in Silicon Valley, uh, where, where it's m- mostly tech people. So that's when I started opening my eyes to what product design really was. And the pivotal moment was really when I had met with a friend of a friend who was a recruiter at Airbnb. And she was a few years older than me. So she had a pretty stable career track. Like she was, she was making good money and I really looked up to her. And so we grabbed lunch and I asked her, I was very vulnerable with her. Hey, look, I'm so lost in my career. And I really thought beauty marketing was something that I really wanted to get into. I thought this was my dream job and it's, it's not. What do I do? I don't really know what to do. And she's the one who told me, who really encouraged me to take, to consider product design more seriously and, and consider that route. Um, and she told me that she was also taking design classes on the side because this is something that really interests her. And she's a technical recruiter. So I knew that she, um, she gained a lot of, she had a lot of visibility with what, uh, she had a lot of visibility with the different types of job in tech and how um, people enjoy their jobs. And so it sounded like from what she was telling me that product design was a pretty promising career track. So that's when I knew, okay, this is something that I think I will do well because I like to approach problems in an analytical way. And one of the things that I didn't really get from beauty marketing was the more methodical analytical side of approaching a problem in the beauty industry. It's a lot more about the trends, right? And the trends can change every, every month or every so often. And there's really not much logic to it. It's more like social behavior. Um, whereas in product design, there's a lot more structure and processes and methods that go into solving the problem, you're using data to inform your decisions. Um, And so I really like that aspect of product design. And I I thought it would be something worth trying. And, and if it doesn't pan out, I'll figure another way out. Yeah, so you're currently a senior product designer at Instacart. Could you walk us through a typical day or week at work? So my days look very different every week. And that's what I really like about my job is it's very versatile in a lot of ways. So on Mondays, I usually have standups um, with my design team and with my, my pod, uh, which is the, um, the engineers and the PMs that I'm working closely with. And so we'll have a lot of standups and talk about what I'm working on for that week. And on Tuesdays, there's usually design crits. Tuesdays and Thursdays, we have design critique meetings where it's only the designers that are in the meeting and each designer signs up for a certain time slot and we present our designs and get feedback. And then I'll spend, I'll I'll try to block out time to actually do the designs because as a designer, you're, you get pulled into a lot of different meetings with PMs because you you need to have conversations about the strategy behind the feature that you're working on. Um, and depending on the stage of the product, uh, so like in the early stages, I'll try to have a check-in session with my engineers to see if some of the solutions that I'm working on are feasible from a technical perspective. Um, so I'll have some meetings here and there. And then Wednesdays are usually um, no meeting Wednesdays, which usually doesn't happen because <laughs> there are just so many meetings with uh, with working in a virtual world. Um, and so I'll have one-on-ones with my PMs to discuss any tasks that need to be resolved um, that need design input. So I work very closely with my, um, with my colleagues and my PMs and my engineers. Um, and then throughout the, and then in the middle of the project, or yeah, like throughout the project, I'll, I'll have iterations of the solutions that I'm working on, the design solutions. Um, so once I bring it, once I get feedback and bring it back to the design critique, um, I'll take in that feedback and do another round of iteration or maybe go through user testing to test out 
any um, usability issues uh, and, and resolve those before the actual rollout. And then at the end of the project, when the project is about 80% done, I'll have a kickoff with the engineers and the PMs to go through what the designs look like, how um, all the edge cases will be resolved with, uh, with the new designs. And um, from there, the engineers will start scoping out the timeline, build things, and then include me during the QA session where we test out the build. And that usually takes up like a week um, to to uh, to clean up like the UI changes and anything that were that any and anything that we've missed. So as a product designer, you've worked at Zap Labs, Instacart, and Facebook. Could you tell us about your roles at each of these companies? What were some similarities and differences? And also what it's like working at a big tech company versus a smaller startup. So Zap Labs was my first product design job. And there was a lot of learning I had to do on the job. And I experienced a lot of imposter syndrome because this was my first job out of boot camp. And I thought I knew something about design since I got the job. And then when I got the job, I realized I knew nothing about design. And whenever you go through that big transition um, of of growth and and learning new things, there will be a surge of imposter syndrome that you feel because you know now you you now know what you didn't know before. And because of that gap of knowledge and experience that you're seeing, you're gonna feel like you're incompetent. You're gonna feel like you don't have what it takes, uh, but it's just part of the growth process. And so at Zap Labs, I was just learning a lot about UI components and how different uh, design components are used. So I just Googled a lot my way, a lot of my way through um, because I didn't really know how tags worked. You know, like these are very basic things I should know as a designer um, looking back. But at that time, I just didn't know a lot about um, how design systems worked and uh, how different components interacted with each other. So there was a lot of learning there. And then once I got to Instacart, which was a bigger company, it was a mid-sized startup, it was in downtown, and I wanted to work in downtown SF so badly. Um, And I finally got to work at a company that offered me meals and that like that was just like the dream that I had when I was younger um and I was just like super jealous when my friends got uh free food from their companies and so um I joined Instacart super excited and I learned a ton working at Instacart because I tackled a lot of foundational projects I had a lot of ownership over a lot of projects that had high impact. So as an example, I worked on implementing Google Pay and Apple Pay through our shopper app so that um, people who work for Instacart as shoppers, they can use Google and Apple Pay, especially during COVID, to check out the groceries and deliver groceries to people instead of a physical card. Um, so things like that, where I was given big responsibilities and big ownership of things that I wouldn't have had at other places, um, that was huge. And I grew a lot under my current manager, who was my manager at that time as well. Um, she really saw a lot of potential in me and helped me draw that out through different projects and giving me very constructive feedback that was at first very hard to take. Um but over time, I I just knew that that was something to not be take, taken granted for um, because it's, it's really hard to come by great mentors. So I think when you, yeah, when you work at a bigger company, the bigger the company is, your responsibilities might also shift. The ownership might also get smaller, um, which is why I personally like to work at mid-sized companies because that's kind of my sweet spot where I get to have a lot of say in the decisions as a designer um, and a lot of ownership um, without feeling like I'm only working on a a small button where like things are already 
if you work at a bigger company, things have already been more set and the foundation is most likely pretty much set um, where designers are there making small changes here and there. Um, and so I would say those are the main differences between a big company and a mid-sized company and a very small company. So earlier you mentioned feeling imposter syndrome at each progression in your career. When you were feeling those emotions, how did you overcome that or work through it? Mm-hmm. Well, I still feel imposter syndrome here and there now. I don't think it ever goes away. It's more about the different... It's, it's more about um, overcoming certain degrees of imposter syndrome. Like there's different types of imposter syndrome that you will feel. At that time, I just, I just did it. Like even though I was afraid and even though I felt the imposter syndrome, I didn't rely on those feelings to dictate my performance or dictate how I would do at an all hands where I had to speak in front of like 200 people. Um, I just did it and I just knew that I, I knew that doing it will help me overcome that fear. And I still believe in that mentality where, you know, there are times when I, when I come in front of a camera and I'm, I'm filming a YouTube video. And sometimes, depending on the topic of the video, I'll feel imposter syndrome. But I think of it as, mm, that's not, See, I'm like feeling imposter syndrome now. <laughs> it comes in waves. Um, yeah, I tell myself I have valuable things to offer. I have things to say that people want to hear about and I can take up space. I think as an Asian female, um, as well, it's, it's what I've been taught all my life is I, cannot take up space. I can only talk. I should only talk when I have really urgent matters to talk about. Um, and that's how I was brought up. And so doing YouTube, even though I was really scared at a lot of times, it proved myself wrong and it proved my thoughts wrong that no, you know, I like, that's what I feel, but that's not true. And by me doing it, that's how I can overcome those thoughts and feelings. Yeah, that's such an important message. And I think a lot of our listeners can really relate to that feeling. And so I actually want to ask you about your experiences working in the tech industry as a woman of color. First off, what have your experiences been like? And second, do you have any advice for young women of color who are starting their careers in male-dominated industries like tech? Yeah, oftentimes I'm usually the only Asian female or sometimes the only female. And that was pretty much the case for the first three years of working in tech. And you kind of have to be comfortable with with not looking like others in the room and it's a balance of not letting those differences make you feel siloed or make you feel like you don't belong in the group it's like there's there's an internal work and there's also an external work that a lot of times um, comes through when leadership really values inclusivity and creating an environment where people of all color and gender um, and ethnicities can feel welcomed in an environment. But I, yeah, I mean, to this day, sometimes I, I feel like I don't belong in the group um, just because I'm the only one who looks like me. There's no one else in the group that looks like me. Um, and so in those certain meetings where I feel really nervous speaking up and, and being part of the conversation, um, I tell myself that I've earned my way to this meeting, that again, I have valuable things to say, and it's okay if I appear stupid or if my questions are dumb. It's not the end of the world. Um, I'd rather ask than to not know, uh, because then I'm cutting myself short. I'm selling myself short. 
Um, and also you're selling other people short by, by not taking up space and by, by, uh, minimizing yourself, um, when you are a valuable team player. So one advice I do have, uh, for women who are starting their careers in a male dominated industry is to take risks and risks can be in the form of speaking up during meetings or or being yourself during meetings. It can be in small ways. It doesn't have to be this big thing that you do. Um, but really just embracing yourself uh, and who you are. Um, your leadership style can be different from other people and that's okay. It doesn't mean that you are less than other people. Um, I think there's always this perception of what leadership looks like in the corporate world. Oftentimes people think of leadership in just one dimension. Like there's one type of leader that people think is great um, or people think has a lot of clout or like authority or like has a lot of power. Um but I think leadership can look different in leadership can look different for different people. And so I think it comes confidence really comes through when you embrace all parts of yourself. Um, and so that would be one thing that I would say is love yourself, embrace yourself, all the ums and the, the little things that you do at work. It's, you know, it's, it's you, it's who you are. Um, and yeah, feel free to take up space. Yeah. And so this question is very related to what you've been talking about. How do you balance wanting to improve yourself with also staying true to who you are and being authentic and really embracing what makes you special in the workplace? Mm, That's a great question. When I think of improving myself, I think you have to first acknowledge where you are now. And that's when I, yeah, you have to first acknowledge where you are now. And for me, I've struggled with this a lot. Um, where I'm such a perfectionist and I'm such a goal getter, I'm very ambitious, where me wanting to improve will sometimes be very detrimental to my mental health or, you know, I will overwork myself. And I try really hard not to do that anymore because I've been burned out um, to a point where I have to quit my job or I have to do something super drastic to recover from all that. And one way that has given, one thing that has given me a lot of freedom is I don't, I no longer attach improving myself to, I, I no longer attach improving myself to my own goals. So it's, it's not a personal goal. It's rather, I try to set my goal towards something that's bigger than me. So with my YouTube channel, as an example, I struggled a lot with um, metrics, right? Like there was a time where I quit my job and I was sort of figuring out uh, where I wanted to go. And so my only income was YouTube. And when your only income becomes a thing that you used to enjoy, you start really pu- putting a lot of pressure onto that thing because this is now your bread and butter. So I was getting obsessed with the vanity metrics, how many views I got, how much engagement are these uh, YouTube videos driving, and I was just really miserable. But once I recognized this was what was happening, and I had that awareness, and I was like, this is not how I want to live my life. This is not how I want to, yeah, this is not how I want to live my life. And once I started really asking myself, why am I putting these videos? Why am I putting content on social media? And what do I want to gain out of it? And I did that for seven days. Um, there's this book called Everything is Figureoutable by Marie Forleo. And I really like her book. 
Um, and that's an exercise that she recommends um, that people go through when you're asking these questions um, and you want to know like what's what's your motive and so when I was doing that exercise I found out that I really cared about helping other people and and helping others who used to be in the shoes that I was in or there who um, people who are struggling with their career or feeling lost like I want to help those people have some clarity or I want to I want to help them feel not as alone. And so once that became my motive and my mission to, if I'm changing one person's perspective about something that will help them feel empowered, that will help them feel less alone, then I've done my job. And like everything else is like, whatever, I'll just have fun. Um, And so not taking myself so seriously as to like, I need to build out my brand. I need to be this person and like just letting that all go and focusing a lot more on how can I help my community in ways that I can and how can I use my skill set to bring about change in my community. Um, and just focusing on that instead of focusing so much on me as a person, I think really allowed that freedom to, um, to improve and not be such a perfectionist. Yeah, and I think a lot of young women struggle with perfectionism. We've certainly struggled with perfectionism while creating the podcast, so I definitely want to try out that exercise you mentioned. I think that's a really powerful way to look at things and to not take yourself too seriously. Earlier, you also mentioned the power of mentorship and how helpful feedback was from your mentor, your boss. Can you tell us about how you've approached finding mentorship in your career? I don't think I've ever asked someone, can you be my mentor? (laughs) I've usually found people who I call, who I consider mentors now, It just always started off with organic conversations um, and I would make that connection and as I connected with them, I would open up about areas I want to grow, areas that I'm struggling with and a lot of women have been very empathetic and very proactive about helping me grow Um, and so I have different people that I go to for different things. Like there's mentors who help me with negotiation. There's people who help me with understanding what my values are in my current life because my values change every year and every so often. Um, And there's people who mentor me in my dating life, right? And like they're, they're my friends. They're not necessarily mentors. So I think of it more as how can I build organic relationships with people in my life and how can I deepen that in a way that that doesn't feel forced, um, but that both parties are being nurtured and, uh, yeah, and just, yeah, just like conversations is really what it is. Yeah, I really liked that perspective on finding mentorship. And on a related note, I want to ask you about networking and cold emails. I know that even in your first job with Tatcha, you found that position through networking and reaching out to people at the company. So do you have any tips or advice you would share with young women who are struggling with networking, cold emails? What helped you improve on that front? Yeah, so networking is a little bit different than making friends, which I think oftentimes people blur those lines. And so um, you might feel like you have to be a social butterfly in order to network. But people, the way that I've always networked is being very succinct with my messages and emails and being very clear why you want to connect. And so when I was networking during my career transition and trying to figure out what I wanted to do, I would send maybe three to four sentences about myself, what I 
why I wanted to connect with them and what I wanted, which was a 30 minute phone call. Because when you time box, um, when you time box your call or your, like your chat, it's less daunting for the other person. So they'll more likely say yes. I actually did a whole video about how to network, um, like a few months back, um, which lays out more in detail some of the things that I'm talking about here. But I would always approach it in a very like practical manner. I'm so-and-so. I'm really interested in learning more about what you do for work, or maybe I'm interested in getting your feedback. I would love to hop on a 30-minute call with you if you're free. And following up to a couple of times if they don't respond for a week. Um, and then after the call, if you really feel like this is someone that you liked talking to, then send a thank you note. Um, even if you don't didn't like talking to them, still send a thank you note. I think it leaves a good impression because so many people don't do that. And it really does go a long way. So yeah, keep it simple. Um, time box it and and be clear what you want. Don't be shy and vague because they won't know what you want if you don't tell them what you want. For our listeners who are interested in working in the tech industry, but not necessarily in software engineering or other technical roles, what are some other non-technical career paths in the tech industry? There's product management that you can get into. Being a product manager is tough, though. Uh, you have to have a good balance of technical knowledge because you're working with engineers. You also have to have opinions about the product and have a backbone and be able to convince others um, and stakeholders to what you're trying to do with the product. Um, but yeah, product management is also a, a good track to go into if you enjoy it. And then there's also project managers, which are more, um, logistical, which are pro project manage, project managers take care of more of the logistics of the project. Um, whereas product managers are product owners of, of some of the features that roll out. Um, and then, then you have the, and then you have the product designers, product design managers, brand designers, content strategists is also a field that's really growing. Um, it used to be content or it used to be UX writers and UX copywriters, and now they're called content designers. Um, and so they're the ones that are editing copy for certain products and working with design and um, the product team to to help organize the contents in the app. Yeah, those are those are some non-technical jobs in tech. And in your role as a product designer, how often would you say you interact with people in these different roles across the company? I interact very closely with my product manager. Oh, there's also user research. Um, user researchers, I also work closely with depending on this phase of the project. So if it's like an initial, if my project is at its initial stage, then I will do a lot of concept testing or maybe usability testing to test out, to validate my designs before actually building out the designs. And then with my content strategists or content designers, I work with them pretty closely for my mock-ups because I'll work on some of these designs and I'll need input on how to frame this orientation screen. And like, I need to understand what goes into the header and what goes into the body um, because that will determine the experience as well. So I work pretty closely with all of them. So we are huge fans of your YouTube channel where you share videos on career, lifestyle, and more. How do you balance your full-time job with YouTube? And do you have any productivity tips you can share with us? I don't balance it well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is my answer. Um, 
I, I try to make time because I know not having, but yeah, I, I try to make time because if I don't make time, I'm never going to do it. Um, I used to be a huge planner. Now I just plan every week and I read this book called Atomic Habits, which was pretty life-changing. It wasn't like mind-blowing, but I think it really helped me understand the importance of having a system in place uh, because I was very into goal setting and setting goals and I would never meet my goals because my goals would just be so unrealistic. And the part that was missing was having a system and having a routine that will help me sit at my desk and actually do the work. So what I normally do when I don't feel like doing a certain task that I just have to get done, like video editing is such a grueling process. It takes hours to edit one video. Um, and people think, oh, YouTube video, it's like, it's, it looks so fun. You get free products <laughs> and you get all these sponsorships. There's a lot of time involved <laughs> in all of that work. And video editing is something I don't particularly enjoy that much, but it's just something that I have to do. And so even with that, I, um, there are days when I kind of push it aside and now I have to like spend 20 hours in one day and just like get the video out. So now what I do is I try to just sit down for 30 minutes. Um, I use a Pomodoro timer like for 25 minutes and I just start the task. I don't care how much I've progressed in those 25 minutes. I just start it and just do the thing. And usually that will keep me in that mode of like the flow and I'll keep doing it and then like two hours would have passed so that's how I usually do um that's how I stay productive most of the days even with design there are days when I I don't want to do this thing that I've been pushing out for too long so I'll just set the timer and turn off my phone or turn off notifications and just laser focus on that one task for 25 minutes and then by then I'll feel a lot better and like I'll, I'll, I'll want to do it more. Um, so that keeps me, uh, that keeps the momentum going. So as someone who is about six years out of college, how do you define success? And how has that changed throughout the college to post-grad transition? This could be in your personal or professional life, really however you'd like to approach this question. Yeah, even just a few years back, I defined success as if I have 100,000 subscribers on YouTube, if I am a senior product designer, if I'm a design manager, you know, they were all about getting to a certain place or getting to a certain position. Now I define success as, am I healthy? Am I healthy both physically and mentally? Do I have meaningful relationships in my life? Do I have time to care for the people that I really care about? Because the more I'm growing up, I guess this is part of growing up and adulting, is life is so short. And at the end of the day, what really matters is people. And if I'm not in touch with the people that I love and the people that I care about, then all these things that I do don't mean much to me anymore. Um and so I think that was like a huge shift in me. And my, even my friends can kind of see that difference where I used to be a very intense person, like very calculative in a sense where I would calculate my time so well because I just wanted to be efficient. I wanted to get things done. Um, but when you become less attached to a certain outcome and you just kind of let things happen and, and just let things flow, um, then I feel like there is a lot more content that comes out of that. And so now I, I feel a lot more comfortable in my own skin. I feel a lot more content. I mean, I think that's that has a lot to do with how I've redefined what success looks like for me. 
Definitely. And based on your experiences, how can young women who are starting out in their careers find a fulfilling career path based on their skills and interests? You have to just try it out. <laughs> you have to try out and go through it in order to really know what you want and what you don't want. I have a lot of people who ask me through DMs or ask me through email. I'm trying to make this pivot. I'm really scared. I don't know what to do. I've been really thinking a lot. And I, I sense a lot of anxiety and I completely understand where that's coming from. But there's a certain point where you have to stop thinking and just, and just do it. And as you do it, you'll learn, you'll figure yourself way, you'll figure, you'll figure out your own path. And I think success also looks different for everyone. And what I think is really important is that you define your own success and your journey is not going to look like everyone else's. Uh, some people, it takes two years to figure out what they really want to do and and, and uh, they, they find that momentum really quickly. Some people, it takes years. It takes several years. And so I, will, I really want to encourage women out there um, who are sort of at the crossroads to say, trust your intuition. It's there for a reason. Um, you know yourself better than you think. And if you enjoy the process, it'll really pan out. Like things will fall into place if you enjoy the process. On a related note, do you have any advice you would like to share with young women who are starting out their careers? So this could be directly related to career, but also, you know, relationships, finance, health and wellness, etc. Mm -hmm. Create opportunities for yourself instead of relying on opportunities to land in front of you. I've created a lot of internships for myself when I was making that transition from chemistry to marketing. And I learned a lot through that. Uh, but I think be, I didn't get paid for those internships as well. But I learned a lot and it's gotten me somewhere. And so no time is going to be a waste when you put in the effort and you put in the time to figure out what you want to do. And everything is going to add up where at the end, you'll like look back and see, oh, that was not a waste of time at all. Even though at that moment, you might feel like, what am I doing with my life? Um, one tip I do have for finance, it's something I really wish I had learned early in my career is setting up your 401k and learning about Roth IRA, what that is. Learn about how you can put your money aside and like let it grow, right? Look up like traditional IRA and like know the difference. Um, set up a savings account, you know, all that like very basic financial things. I, I wish I had known in my, um, in my early 20s. So as a product designer, where do you look for for inspiration when you're, you know, hitting a creative roadblock or struggling to progress in whatever project you're working on? So whether these are resources or other creatives, how do you go about this process? I download a bunch of apps and I study these apps that I download. I go through the onboarding process. I take note of what kind of components they're using, what interactions they're using, how they're using their notifications, how they're notifying people of certain features. Um, I also use Mobbin a lot, mobbin.design.com. Uh, they basically screenshot a bunch of different apps and upload them into their website. And so that's one way where I try to like look at what other designers are designing these days. Um, I also look at a lot of the design system libraries that are 
open to public uh, from different companies like Google Material Design or um, Shopify's design system and sort of familiarize myself with some of the changes that are happening when it comes to design components. Um, and I also, what's also helped me is brainstorming with other designers or getting critiqued, uh, which is why critiques are so important because I think that's the one way that you can really grow as a designer is to get critiqued by other designers or other people who think differently than you because then you'll know the blind spots that you haven't seen before that will uh, make your design stronger. So we want to end by asking you as a content creator yourself, who are your favorite content creators to follow? Mm -hmm. I really love Vanessa Lau. She is an entrepreneur, coach, content creator, and she She's such a badass woman. <laughs> uh, she's also Asian American. So I think I just relate to her a lot more, um, with the type of content, co- with the type of content she, that she provides, but also with just, you know, some of the values that she has really resonates with me. Um, she gives very practical tips on how to grow your business using social media. And that's something I want to do eventually is to have my own course and to teach people um, how to have design critiques or how to have a better design portfolio or better um, design deck. And so I've been looking at her content a lot these days and um, learning a lot about how she communicates so succinctly and concisely um, while giving so much value to the people that she's serving. So she's a huge role model for me. Thank you so much for joining us today, Christine, and sharing your insight and advice with the Super Bloom community. For our listeners, if you're interested in learning more about Christine, we'll link her channel and social media in the description. Thanks so much, Christine. Thanks so much. Thank you. Hey everyone, this is Melanie. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Super Bloom. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere else you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate us on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. And make sure to check us out on Instagram at Super Bloom Podcast for updates and additional content.